Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. That's always the best comic. Every single time. I don't care so much about observations or relationships or any of that sort of stuff. How do you see the world in a way that is going to foster empathy and connectivity? That's who I want to do projects on. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad to have you back for part two of Two with Julie Seabaugh, an amazing, amazing writer, producer, and her documentary out right now, Too Soon Comedy After 9-11, is incredible. You can catch it on Vice. Don't miss it. It's a really incredible take on how the world changed in comedy clubs after the bombings of the Twin Towers and other areas of the country. And before we get started, if you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz at Twitter or Instagram. Or if you want to, you can do so by reaching me on my website at barrykatz.com. And when I think about Julie Seabaugh, I think about somebody who, when I sit across from her, seems so young and so energetic, yet so smart and worldly and has a unique and authentic sense of humor and somebody who has tremendous ability to wax poetry within her words and her stories and her interviews and articles. She's truly a very unique artist who's chosen a lane that not a lot of people are in, writing about comedians in her own unique spin and supporting the craft of stand-up comedy for her entire career, which has spanned probably two decades. But you never know it by being around her, you never know it by looking at her, and you never know it by just hanging out with her youthful energy. It's just an incredible spirit of our profession, and I just love what she does for other comedians. I love her honesty, her truth, but also her support of this very, very precious craft that is a part of the comedy business. And when I think of her, I think about somebody who's worked her way up from the very bottom and has created tremendous relationships with some of the greatest comedians in the world has created that relationship capital to where she's able to go to people, the greatest people in the world, and sit down with them, and they trust her, and she makes them feel safe. And word gets around the comedy community that when you sit down with Julie Seabaugh, or you do an interview with her, or you do this documentary, you're going to be treated with respect and dignity and kindness Your story is going to be told with the utmost accuracy. And when it's all said and done and you watch it 
or if you look at it or read it, you are going to be honored and proud that you sat down with her and you did that interview. That's what she brings to the table. So many people you can't even mention who feel that kind of kindred spirit to her. And I know it sounds simple, and I've probably talked about it a million times, but you have to figure out a way throughout your life to create those relationships with people. You have to be in a situation where you change people's lives by being the best representation of yourself. Kind, generous, thoughtful, smart, funny, but overall just making people feel like a million bucks. That's what Julie Seabaugh does. And I can guarantee you, if you can figure out how to be that way for everybody in your life on the way up, it's going to be an amazing ride. But if you can't figure it out, it's going to be an incredibly bumpy ride. And so please do everything you can to create those relationships, to create that relationship capital. And I guarantee if you do, you'll have the kind of career that Julie Seabaugh has. Here we go in three, two. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Creating holy shit moments. Undeniable. You fucking firing me up, Katz. I love this man. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. So tell our audience, when you first started your fascination with a different muscle of the comedy business, roasting, which also oh, led you to write a book on it. Uh, well, I've always been, you know, naturally fascinated with comedy history anyway. And the roasts are part of that. The Friars roast, the Comedy Central roast. And... You know, I kind of had heard in 2013 that, oh, there's this cool new show happening upstairs in the belly room late Tuesday nights. It's unlike anything you've seen. You got to check it out. And I actually think Brody Stevens was, was the first person who told me that. So I can thank Brody for getting me into roast battle. And it took me so long to finally go <laughs> because I hear it a lot. I hear there's tons of shows I have to go to all the time. And I think I was there for something else at the store. It might have had something to do with Doug Stanhope. And you're down in the hallway and you hear coming from the belly room stairs, like people chanting and shrieking and there's DJ music flooding. And you're like, what the hell is going on up there? And I finally get it and, you know, come through the door and it's standing room only packed and everyone's sweating and there's these celebrity judges over here and like what the hell <laughs> like okay this is something new and exciting and i just kind of fell in love with the fact that it was the most diverse comedy show i'd ever seen there's like I, i'm not even gonna go into all the people there that i love uh but the fact that you can have all this diversity and have a safe space to kind of get out all the things you don't like about yourself. It's, you think that's what roasting's about? I do. It's because it's, so it's only roasting the ones you love. But you just said getting the things out that you don't like about yourself. Right. It's other people making you feel okay about your height or your your weird relationship or this thing you did wrong this one time and everyone in the room is doing this and if we could all be a little bit more open about these things it's i think really mentally helpful in a lot of ways um just the fact that like it's also helped a lot of comics have careers in writing or production or other things that they wouldn't have had just from straight stand-up. 
and flexing those skills I think is really interesting to follow as well. But yeah, I just fell in love with it and it had such a immediate effect in the comedy industry. It had so many imitator shows and it was expanding all around the globe. And within five years, it, had, it was on like four different international TV platforms, different languages. You know, there's roast battles in China. There's roast, like in South America, everywhere. And I just wanted to kind of capture that sort of lightning in a bottle that I saw unfolding in front of me. And also, you know, when there's inevitably a film made about it, they'll have to use my book for inspiration, much like I'm dying up here. <laughs> so it was also planting my flag in it just a little bit, um, just in something I loved. And yeah, I'm still there pretty much every Tuesday. You can find me at the store in Roast Battle. I've never gotten sick of it. Why do you think it didn't work on Comedy Central the way it works in the comedy club? Yeah, there's something about that little room with the energy just completely bouncing off the walls with nowhere to go and just hyping everybody up. Um, that you can't quite capture in a bigger room where, you know, they kind of decorated it out so it's like a stadium with graffiti and industrial metal and maybe a little, I don't want to say a little overproduced, but the origins of the show was, you know, two comics were going to get into a fist fight. So... Brian Moses, the host, encouraged them to use their words instead. And, you know, that's a, it's more of a gritty, back smoking alley, parking lot kind of thing that's, yeah, way more difficult to capture with a giant camera crew. And if you have an audience who isn't necessarily knowing what they're seeing and they might be offended by it. Whereas in the belly room, it's, you know, diehards every week in and out. So, yeah. Your favorite roast joke of your entire career that you've ever heard? Oh, of all of them? Of Anyone all time, ever? Your favorite roast joke of all time. Well, I mean, it's got to obviously be uh, the Jeff Ross, uh, I wouldn't fuck you with B. Arthur's dick. <laughs> Come on, it's, it's and then you see, no contest. And you see B. Arthur waving her finger at him. <laughs> I was there in that room. I'm sure. Yeah, I was, I was a big B. Arthur fan, and just to have those worlds combining just blew my mind. One, two, Six degrees of separation. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention some names. Tell me what comes to mind. John Stewart. Probably the most important political comedian of our generation. When I say our, I don't know exactly what generation I'm talking about, but... I think I'm one generation afterwards. <laughs> uh, hugely instrumental in leading the charge of... Uh, and again, this this kind of comes up in the film too, but, you know, he had a way of, uh, it's, it's that whole punching up versus punching down thing of, you know, taking the news, taking politics, taking, you know, social and economic issues and making them not only palatable to people who would otherwise be wildly disinterested in them, but helping us laugh and understand it. and like yeah this is this is the world we live in we have to laugh at it um i was fortunate enough to interview him just over the phone once at one point when uh, the colbert report was starting and i just remember uh it was definitely one of my interview highlights of all time mitch hedberg oh my goodness mitch hedberg so we've been talking a lot about david tell but if I, like, had to pick an all-time favorite, it's probably Mitch Shepard. Yeah, he was just so unique and so, uh, you know, his word economy was brilliant. Uh, he wasn't dirty. He was, uh, he was timeless. You can listen to all of his stuff now, and it's 
exactly as funny as it was when you first heard it and it blew your mind. Um, I've done a couple different projects on Mitch uh, that were complete labors of love. Um, and I hope to uh, bring more stories of him into the world in the near future. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Before we move on, I think it's really important for the audience. Also, we had the same birthday. Not year, but day. Define word economy. <laughs> like, uh, for example, you know, you mentioned Rodney. Um, when you can get an idea across in as few words as possible, which if you look at Mitch's old notebooks, he honed those jokes like nobody else would. Uh, you know, my favorite joke was, I think Bigfoot is blurry. To me, that's way more scary. A large, out-of-focus monster roaming the countryside. I think Bigfoot is blurry. That's five words. A joke. That's hilarious and absurd. And everyone knows exactly what he's talking about. Joke economy. Fantastic. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel. Ooh. I think he was kind of the closest current talk show host to carrying on the mantle that Letterman did of being in this position of entertaining uh, and also being annoyed at the things that he has to inform people about. Um <laughs> uh, he was from Vegas and I was, I lived in Vegas for a while. Um, so it was always kind of fascinating hearing stories about him before he was famous. Um, yeah, there's just something about like, I don't want to see a talk show host that appeals to absolutely everybody. Again, comedy is subjective. But I like it with a little more brains and a little more attitude and the fact that he got so political during the Trump presidency uh, and experienced a little bit of, you know, backlash, but nothing he couldn't deal with. Uh, I, I just think is, uh, yeah, very admirable. And I, would, I, uh, I look forward to kind of seeing if he goes in even other more Letterman-esque or Jon Stewart-esque career directions and does like bigger projects when he's done with the whole talk show racket. Why would Steve Colbert, if he were in a soundproof booth, say that Jimmy Kimmel became political? Why would Stephen Colbert, if he was sound, say, uh, the actual Stephen Colbert or like Colbert the character, I guess. The actual Steve Colbert talk mm. show host. Am I going to know the answer to this? Yeah. Hmm. Is it something about the truthiness? Is it... The fascinating thing about Steve Colbert. Amazing thing about Les Moons as the president of CBS at the time. <laughs> He's got two choices that his executives have told him are up for the job. Mm -hmm. Their first choice 
Michael Ian Black. Okay. To the point where I believe one of the executives had called him the night before and said, you got the job. Oh, I don't think I knew all this. But Les Moonves feels that Steve Colbert is the guy for the job. And Les Moonves hires Steve Colbert, a man who no one in the world has seen a frame of footage as himself. I mean, yes, they've seen hundreds of hours of him, thousands of hours of him playing a character version of himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, his name's Steve Colbert, but that's not Steve Colbert on the Colbert Report. That's like a heightened character. Mm -hmm. So he selects Steve Colbert to be his late night talk show to be himself. So Steve Colbert did the first year or so of the show as himself and the ratings started going down mm. and Kimmel's ratings started going up and Jimmy Fallon's ratings were up. So Steve Colbert made an executive decision. Hey, I'm going to lose this show. So I might as well just be true to myself and talk politics and be political. His ratings started going up. Mm, okay. Kimmel wasn't doing politics. But then Kimmel, or else the powers that be, saw that, hey, this is working. And it's not that Jimmy isn't phenomenal when it comes to politics and hasn't talked about politics in the past. But normally politics is a lightning rod and normally a talk show host picks one side or the other. Right. And obviously there are a lot of... Uh... Anyway, so he chose that way and I don't think it was a coincidence that all of a sudden Jimmy Kimmel became a political comedian on late night talk show. Mm. I think he saw the writing on the wall that Colbert took the risk. It worked. And he felt, hey, I can do this as good as anybody. And it's not a bad thing. It's just you see what's happening in the world and you want to compete. And Jimmy Kimmel, I have so much respect for because, I mean, his show has had so many incarnations. I mean... I was there in the very beginning where he used to have a talk show guest host on for the whole week. He used to do a no monologue, but, you know, he evolved and he's an incredible man, too. I really have so much respect for him. Yeah. You never hear anything bad about him. No. Ever. I like the fact that I can still learn things from you. <laughs> <laughs> That'll be the last thing you learn from me. Uh, Don Rickles. Don Rickles. Uh... I saw him perform in Vegas at uh, the comedy festival when HBO had it there. So this would have been 2006 or seven, I guess. Uh, and I just remember, uh, <laughs> I'm a broken record at this point. Dave Attell standing back in the back doorway of Caesar's palace in the ballroom, kind of peeking his little head around. <laughs> watching Rickles, which warmed my heart. And then Rickles said, uh, I've heard that there's a young man here named Dave Attell tonight, and he's a fantastic comic, and you should all check him out. And I saw Attell kind of wipe away a little tear and run away out in the hallway. Uh, that is my fondest Rickles memory. Um, I also interviewed him a couple times. Um... Yeah, it's it's interesting just kind of thinking about that time type of comic now. The insult comic. Oh, he'd, uh, he'd be canceled in a second. Yeah, I mean Lisa Lampanelli's not doing comedy anymore. Uh it's yeah, just this kind of bygone thing that I just was watching a roast clip of Rickles. Uh -huh. And uh on the dais was this woman, Lawanda Page, who was this famous African-American comedy actress. And 
I think Charlotte and I were watching, or somebody was watching. Charlotte was one of my assistants here, along with Daniel and Mareka and Michaela, and and we're watching it. And he's saying this the line as quick as ever, but it just canceled in a second. He said, "Lawanda, good to see you. Sunday, my house, just the furniture, dust it all for me." <laughs> and I can't imagine the inappropriate things he said to you. So, um, but. I don't remember that interview too well. I do remember. How could you not remember an I'm interview? I'm not sure. With I, I remember the one I did with Carlin so much better. I'm not sure. Right, he here. called me like Jules. Carlin called me Jules. That was great. He's one of the ones who evolved tremendously over his whole career. You know, he started out doing the safer, what was it, the hippy dippy weatherman and wearing the tie and the suit and all that. And found a way to talk about society in ways that you know like the best comedy does help move us forward a little bit introduce ideas that we might not have been aware of perspectives from other people that we might not have considered and bring a little order to the chaos uh, he was always obviously somebody who was huge when I was starting out. And the fact that I got to interview him and he was like so great, such a good interviewee. I love the way he not only had all the wordplay on stage, but he was very meticulous in his interviews as well. He asked me very first thing, are you recording this? And I'm like, yeah, isn't that what journalists are supposed to do? He's like, they don't all. And they misquote me all the time. I found that fascinating just as someone who works with words to find like, yeah, he's a guy who actually appreciates them on the level as professional writers too. And the fact that he said, uh, he also said some nice things about, he's like, you got a great style about you. So I'm going to love him forever. And now the fact that I have gotten to know Kelly, his daughter a little bit. She's great. Oh man, I, I've i been to her house a time or two and also- Did um, you go to the back house where he- Yes, <laughs> yes. That's where I interviewed her. Oh, so good. Um, and I even was able to, um, the interview that I did with him because he made sure I was taping it as I would have been anyway, I, was able to give her that little micro cassette from back in what, 2007 or eight um, for the documentary that's being worked on for mm. him. And I that's just an amazing kind of full circle thing for me. Joan Rivers. <laughs> uh, I love the documentary about her. You make noises like a Jewish woman. <laughs> Everyone... Like a Jewish woman sitting down in a country club. Ah, well, I am 41 at this point, oh, so it's, Jesus it's a good thing. Oh, Christ, was, you could be my daughter. This padding behind my old bones. Could be my daughter. Anyway, keep going. <laughs> See, this is when stuff like that, I, I just get too dorky and excited about comedy. And I and I can't help myself from being like too, oh my gosh, I'm Mitch Hedberg. It's, it's, it means that I'm in the right profession, that I still get very excited about people when you mention their names. I loved her tenacity and confidence and business sense. I wish I had more of her business sense. Um, I guess, you know, obviously people didn't like some of her union perspectives towards the end. But, I mean, this woman carved a path in a very masculine field and was self-effacing uh, in a way that kind of made it okay, much like roasting, and she was a great roaster, um, to talk about the things you don't like about yourself. And people hadn't really, I mean, Phyllis Diller, obviously, but she had more of a kind of housewife perspective to her. Um, I think Joan is probably yeah, joke-wise, uh, she's got to be, what, the most prolific and important female comic of all time. Jordan Peele. Jordan Peele was someone 
who I didn't really know until the Key and Peel series. I love the fact that he has pivoted his career <laughs> in a very interesting way to taking more control over what he puts out. And it's, it's kind of... There are ways of um, communicating things that I think he does in the horror film realm that are very parallel to his comedy stuff. Like, it's all about finding that truth and, and what really hits you in the gut in new ways that you haven't been presented with before. I interviewed him for a 2016 Oral History of Comedy Central. And... Uh, yeah, just the idea that Key and Peele was such a huge success as it was, and now we kind of don't have those type of shows as much on Comedy Central, I think is a, a big loss to kind of all of us who really loved that network as much as we did coming into it. John Apatow. I'm trying to restrain myself from making noises. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Jed Apatow, former stand-up comic, turned, you know, film multi-hyphenate. I love the way he has showcased up-and-coming comics. That's something I always try to do, too, to really make people aware of, this is a unique talent. This is what they're doing differently. They're someone you should check out. And I love, you know, he does his more narrative feature films, but also all the documentaries now he's doing. The Carlin one. And I thought Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling was amazing. I could watch four hours of comedy. Like, uh, every comedian should have, like, a four-hour documentary in my mind. Uh, maybe not every comic, but there's always a lot of detail that seems to be lost in... Um, like, for example, the Patrice O'Neill documentary. I felt there was, like, a lot more that, um, like, it's, it's interesting to kind of capture comics in a way of seeing them offstage and figuring out where this material came from. What sort of phase were they in in their life when they were, you know, making joke X, Y, Z? Like, that stuff's kind of more important to me as a fan than the actual jokes uh, that are the bulk of their legacies. Yeah, and I think that's something he's he's getting... Even his, um, the, the documentary on the, what, Avet Brothers, Avet Brothers? I'm, I always say it wrong. I knew nothing about them. And yeah, just seeing the process of creation is endlessly fascinating to me. Hey, everybody. Let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So lastly, speaking of the project of creation, talk about your documentary, Too Soon, Comedy After 9-11. Take our audience, if you will, just as economically as you can, word-wise, 
to the inspiration for you to do it. You never did a documentary before. The process of somebody doing something who, and I'm not saying anything that's insulting, that has no budget for making a documentary. All they have is relationship capital. And to move forward, get it made, and sell it. I am bad with the economic speaking, aren't I? See, this is why I can't be a comic, because I just ramble too much. So, uh, as I have hinted, uh, journalism, especially as a freelancer, is not the most stable profession. And I've now been doing it for going on 20 years and the money just keeps getting worse and the relevance of journalism has waned um, you know it used to be important it used to uh, be about truth as opposed to hot takes and sound bites and listicles and i've kind of got tired of running that whole treadmill and so when I had a mutual friend, Nick Scown, who's a film director, Emmy-nominated uh, director, Nick Scown, uh, he'd had an idea for this documentary ever since uh, he went to visit film schools in New York in September of 2001. And he kept his trip that was planned. Uh, he didn't end up seeing any film schools, but he you know, talked to all his friends and they were in shock and they remembered where they were and who they had lost. And whenever it was time to get his return flight, he had to uh, leave the subway down at the World Trade Center and walk up the stairs because it was closed, obviously. And he accidentally found himself next to the wreckage and took pictures of it and just wondered... Are we ever, you know, we're never going to be the same again. And when he got home, the onion issue where they made every single story about 9-11 in a equally funny and heartbreaking way was waiting for him. And that was sort of the genesis of it. He'd had it in his mind this whole time. Uh, it was 2016 when he approached me uh, spring and I was like, this is a great idea. I'm glomming onto it immediately. I'm going to call in every favor I possibly have. Uh, we started filming it just for Laughs Montreal that year. And for four years, it was really just the two of us, him and a camera, me setting up interviews, conducting them, uh, dealing with the transcripts, making a paper cut. Um, and then in the fourth year, uh, we kind of got connected with Pulse Films, who has a good legacy of more music documentaries and they also did uh you know trophy which was an emmy winner they did the uh, beastie boys doc um and they in turn connected us with hazy mills which is sean hayes and todd milliner and we tried to sell this thing everywhere and no one wanted it because they either didn't get it or thought it was too controversial and vice was the one uh who definitely, you know, we didn't even have to pitch it to them. They wanted it before we'd even pitched it. So not only was it something that, yeah, we're, we're going to go with them because we kind of have no other choice, but they were also very enthusiastic about it. And it's just a way of, um, I'm still telling a story about comedy in a historic way, philosophical way, uh, social economic way you know 9-11 is something that we all remember and what is less remembered is the fact that the comedy clubs closed for the first time and the talk shows left the air and we all really wondered you know are we gonna ever laugh again so this film kind of traces how we went from point a to now, 20 years later, we have Pete Davidson making a lot of, you know, he talks about his firefighter father who perished in the towers. So we all use comedy to, you know, 
heal from different things. If you can laugh at something, it takes the power away from it. And this is just an example of the biggest time of, wow, we need it more than ever. But it was really challenging for the comics. So we kind of use their perspectives to really get an insider's point of view of, you know, uh, Mark Maron almost getting into fistfights with a Marine. Uh, you have Janine Garofalo basically being harassed by right-wing conservative radio and all this stuff that just kind of reminds us, like, there was cancel culture before it was even cancel culture. We just didn't have social media and the ability to call it that then. Uh... But, like, through it all, comedy is never going to go away. It's never going to um, be something... Um, let me rephrase that. It's something that is subjective for everyone. So I think what I really like people to take away from it most is not that all jokes are acceptable at any time ever. It's that people can laugh at what they want to laugh at. And as opinionated as we may be about this whole wide world of comedy, like you can't tell people it's inappropriate to laugh at a joke or to tell that kind of joke because you never know what people are dealing with and they need to heal with in their own minds. And humor is always like the number one truth teller, in my opinion. And just the number one way of connecting with others. That was not at all in a nutshell. <laughs> and I apologize for that. Right, but again, I'm just dorking out on the story of comedy. It's, it's you know, I just love making projects uh, dealing with comedy about things I'm passionate about. And this is just the biggest thing uh, that has been exciting me for five years. And I'm just very glad to... Uh, be able to finally get it out there and hopefully people will like it i'm sure they will your proudest <laughs> moment in show business proudest moment in show business uh there's probably two i know you just said one moment uh there was one week in september of 2014 where i had both the cover of the village voice with Bridget Everett and the cover of Ellie Weekly with Roast Battle the same week, which was fantastic. Uh, yeah, they were both obviously long processes and I didn't plan for them to be the same week, but when they were, it's like, wow, I'm, I'm kind of a bi-coastal comedy person. All right. And then of course, uh, my 40th birthday last year when David Tell kind of popped in to my birthday roast. And he didn't really roast me too hard per se, but just having him there and be a part of it was just so amazing. And I will never forget how proud I felt that night that he actually like wanted to show up for my birthday. So I was proud that I was invited. <laughs> it was fun, right? It was great. It was really great. That's the only time I've ever like quote unquote done comedy with all the I wrote my own jokes at the end and was, I don't think they were terrible. That was great. Yeah. Your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel yourself to the next level. Right. The journalism degradation has definitely been a big part of it. A couple of years ago I had gotten two stories into the New York Times and I kind of finally thought all right I've, I've finally made it I'm gonna be okay after all of these years and my editor just suddenly ghosted me after assigning me a Brody Stevens story this was gonna be for the anniversary of his death and it was very, very crushing to me because I realized, oh no, if, if the New York Times can't even foster appropriate editor-journalist relationships, then I, I think the game is up. There's nowhere to go but down from here. That was definitely a very sad trip 
home after I had I'd met with her and we had a new story going and it was all set to go and then suddenly she just isn't answering my emails anymore. You should send her a fruit basket. <laughs> I know it's not. Because a that allowed you to go and do the documentary. It did. And yeah. then when you realize that documentaries make you want to buy a handgun, <laughs> then you'll realize there's something else you'll want to do and you'll send your documentary a fruit basket. Well, that's the thing. You have to kind of keep pivoting, right? Can't stay the same. Which, it's like a, like a swimming shark. If you don't swim, you'll die and that, that kind of thing. But... Which leads me to my last question. What advice do you have for the young person growing up in a farm somewhere, uh, milking the cows and trying to figure out where their life is going to go, and then to get to the point where they have the kind of career that you've had? So I think it's a two-part question. One, how do they have the kind of career that you have in your space but since you've known so many comedians, you've interviewed so many comedians, the part two would be, what advice do you have to any comedian out there to get to be the kind of level of the people that you've interviewed? Hmm. I mean, I think in both cases, it always has to boil down to that passion. Like, what is your gut telling you you have to do? For me, it started as writing, and then I found what I was supposed to write about. And I've never had any money, ever, but I have never been bored a day in my life with what I do. It is constantly fun and surprising and unique. And just the fact that... Um, I don't have any regrets. I was sitting around a campfire a couple months ago and people were like discussing their regrets and I couldn't think of anything. I have given everything to like my love of comedy and it has never steered me wrong. I've followed that passion over money and jobs every single time. So I don't even really consider myself all that super successful. I very much see myself still in the process. But I'm now, upon the completion of this film, a bit more... Uh, like, I, I know I've chosen the right path. And as for comics, uh, it's just, you gotta be unique. You gotta speak, speak truth to power. It's ridiculous when you phrase it like that, but what is it about you that you might find troubling? And how can you create comedy out of that? That's always the best comedy. Every single time. I don't care so much about observations or relationships or any of that sort of stuff. How do you see the world in a way that is going to foster empathy and connectivity? That's who I want to do projects on. Julie Seaball. <laughs> Barry Katz. You are unbelievable. Thank you so much. It was awesome. I'm so grateful you came. No, I'm so this. I'm so thrilled that we got to do this and honored. Uh, you, you know, I when I first moved to New York, I was watching Comedian pretty much every other night or so. The Seinfeld documentary. Yes, the 2002 Seinfeld documentary about putting together a new act from scratch, <laughs> which also featured Orny Adams, and you gave him a little speech at one point. That was so great. Uh, it was about how, you know, he's he's very, uh, 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 let's say, uh, doubtful. I, I don't know how to phrase it politely. Um, high strung. High strung. And you just said uh, to George Shapiro, no less, like, this is what I tell this young man. All I've ever told him, 
all you have to do is go on that stage, do your material, and when you get off, just zipping motion with the fingers, zipping the lips, and let the act speak for itself. You don't need to worry about what's the dip next deal I'm getting, what's my career gonna look like, all you have to do be like Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright gets on stage, he says thank you. He gets off stage, he says thank you. And Orny chimes in, well, wh where's Stephen Wright now? <laughs> and, and Barry says, well, he's, he's one of the most prolific comics of all time. Well, where is he now? He won an Oscar for a film. I, uh, okay. And he, and he pauses a little bit and Barry goes, see, I love the fact that I still know this. He's like, uh, I, I'm telling you this not because I want you to fail and have people hate you. I want you to succeed. I want you to be happy. But all you need to do is relax. <laughs> and then you're like, I gotta go watch this guy. Whatever. And Orny tells his manager, George Shapiro, what, you're just gonna sit here and let him talk to me like that? And Shapiro's like, there's nothing he said that I wouldn't refute. And Orny kind of has this look of like, and then end of the scene. <laughs> so it is a great honor to be uh, sitting here now with you today with uh, somebody who I saw give that universally applicable advice. It's not only comedy, it works for everything. Just let the act speak for itself and don't worry about the rest of it and relax. So thank you again for... Uh, letting me be part of this and also inspiring me way back when well thank you for the homage it was slightly paraphrased of course yes you left out a few things thank god <laughs> uh, i appreciate you so much and i'm so grateful good luck on the film thank you as always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.